Amen. So I recognize that some of you may be distracted um, as you sit there today because of the enormous size of my biceps. Um, and uh, that's easy to, to be distracted by. I have huge arms. I could easily beat anybody in here in an arm wrestling competition. Um, and, and so I recognize that that might be a distraction for you. Try not to be distracted by that. No, really. I mean, you, you know. I mean, the laughter gave it away. Listen, like in just a, if I would have kept talking in just a second, Scott Brooks is going to come up here and say, prove it. I mean, it was... He was going to say, I mean, for real, like you're going to talk a big game. You ever do that? Like if you're, I mean, if you're a guy, I know you do because I'm a guy, I know you. Um, if you're a guy, I know you do this. You, you stand around with a group of friends, right? And you start talking about, and it's just a matter of time before somebody says, hey, I can, whatever it is, I can eat the rest of that burger in one bite. And you say something like, I can hit, I can jump over that entire ditch right there. And you just, it doesn't matter what it is. And whether you're talking about it, like I could beat anybody in here in arm wrestling, or whether it's your friends who like, you know, bait you into it and they say, I bet you can't. And then they put something in the blank. What happens is you create this environment where you make this claim that seems unreasonable. You make this claim that seems kind of big and audacious a little bit. And, and everybody then says, okay, prove it. So if you say, that you can beat anybody in this room in arm wrestling, then somebody in just a moment is going to say, prove it. And I couldn't. I mean, really, I couldn't. But if you know what it's like and you've been in that situation, then you know what happens if you're in the crowd, right? Everybody leans in and they, they want to see, can you really do it? Is it really true? Can you eat that burger in one bite? We want to know if you can do it. That's what this series, uh, Prove It, that we're talking about sort of is about. We make these claims as Christians that are big, um, somewhat audacious claim that, that Jesus rose from the grave. It's a little hard to believe that Jesus was dead and then alive. And we also make claims about other things that seem just absolutely backwards. We make claims as Christians that it is better to forgive than to seek revenge. We make claims as Christians that no one actually earns their favor before God. It's just a free gift. We say, love your enemies. And the skeptical world then around us They hear these claims, these miraculous claims, these supernatural things that we say are a part of our faith. And they say, I'm not so sure about that. Prove it. And then they lean in and they look to see, can we prove it? Well, that's what the series that we're in is about. And we have to ask ourselves in this series the question, can we give evidence for what we say we believe. Now I know that we can point to other things. We do this, um, we're professionals at this really. We point to movies and we say if you would watch this movie, then it's going to answer all of your questions. We point to books and we say, if, now I know you have questions, you want me to prove it, but if you read this book, it's going to answer all your... And then we point to like our pastor, right? And we say, if you talk to my pastor, I'm telling you, what, if you talk to my pastor, then he'll prove it for you. 
and I I'm love to provide help for people as as uh, a minister here. I like that. I'm not saying I don't like that. I like to help when people get stuck and they say, oh, I was talking to somebody and and I got stuck here. I like that. But what I'm talking about that we often do is not asking for help. What I'm talking about that we often do is completely shift responsibility away from ourselves to something else as the source of proof. And so if you'll look over to the sides of our auditorium here, you see these uh, big sheets of black paper where we're writing on them with chalk. And it says in the center, we are the proof. Because we don't want to ignore the reality that we are the proof of what we say we believe. If I say I believe something, then my life should be the proof. It's not just something that happens in faith. You recognize this in in the rest of your life. Let me just give you a few examples, two examples, really. If I told you that I believe that girls give you cooties, then you're going to need to know that I've already had my cooties shot. On a more serious note, if I told you that I believe it's unethical, immoral, so wrong to eat meat, then if you saw me at the grocery store picking up a delicious New York strip steak then you might think there's something wrong there. Because you want my life. You want your life to prove what you believe. When we make a statement about something that we believe in, our lives become the proof of that. And so last week, as we started this series together, we started out by just saying, do I really believe that Jesus is real? Do I believe that Jesus is is real because if I don't believe Jesus is real, if, he, if Jesus is not real, then it's totally okay to be a casual Christian. It's totally okay to be lukewarm in your faith. But if Jesus is real, if it really is God with us, and Scott talked about the importance of what it means that God is with us. If I really believe that, then my life would represent a witness to that belief that we would be a joyful witness to the reality of God incarnated in Jesus Christ. So do we believe it? Well, we prove it by being a joyful witness. If you missed that sermon last week, you can catch up by downloading our app. And all the sermons are included in our, in our smartphone app. Or you can go to our website um, and catch up to that, um, to that. So that we are here in week two. And this week we're going to continue with this uh, this saying of prove it, and we're going to say, we say as Christians that we have a walk with God. And what we mean by that, we say we have a relationship with God, that I have a relationship with him. Well, can we prove it? What does it look like to prove that I have a relationship with God? Today we're going to talk about specifically that we prove our relationship with God in the way that we interact with our sinfulness. And so today we prove it by admitting our sinfulness. We're going to continue in the book that we were in, uh, 1 John, last week. And so if you do have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll read that together. Uh, 1 John, we're going to read verse 5 through verse 10 together. It says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is such a great paragraph in Scripture. In my Bible, I have the whole paragraph highlighted. It's just an incredible passage. And as we dive in, uh, what we find immediately is this talk about light and darkness. And if, uh, if you've been spending any time over your life in Scripture, you know that there are a lot of places in Scripture that talk about light and darkness. And uh, so this is one of many places that do that. And it says that God is light and it's not a literal meaning, but really is used metaphorically to, uh, to, to understand something that we don't need to complicate. It's actually quite simple. We understand this when we think about what light does as we interact with it in our lives. We know that light, where there is light, we can see things clearly. Where there is light, we can see, and where there is darkness, well, we cannot. Light reveals and darkness hides. Where there is light, we see things for what they truly are. If you're a parent, perhaps you've run into this as I have, where your kid gets some kind of splinter or something weird in their foot, and um, they come to you with pain, and you're looking at it, and the older you get, I think, the more light you need, because, man, I need more light than I used to to see things. And so I find myself there in our living room, the lamp and the overhead light, it's just not enough, so I get out my phone, and it's got the little flashlight, and I'm thinking, why don't I have like one of those surgical kits where all the, the big, powerful light because then I could really see. We struggle to see, but we want to see. I was looking at my son Elijah's um, thing, splinter thing, whatever it was, and I'm sitting there trying to be overly concerned. Did I get it all out? Is it actually a splinter or is it like a worm or something? Like I'm trying to figure out what, and I'm just thinking, I need more light. I need more light. I need to see more clearly. So I call in the helper, big sister Hannah. She holds the light and it, and it really, it, it wasn't a worm, it was just a splinter. But, um, you know, when we, when we have things and we expose it to the light, we can determine for what it really is. Where darkness kind of makes it confusing, the light makes it clear. C.S. Lewis has a way of stating it that's um, really nice. And so I'll put it up here on the screen. This is what he says about this topic. He says, We believe that the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, Not because we can clearly see the sun, in fact we cannot, but because we can see everything else. Light reveals and illuminates, and it seems like such a good thing. So then you naturally ask, then why would people choose darkness? Why would we ever choose to be in the dark? Well, one would only walk in the darkness if they were blind to the reality of the truth in Jesus Christ. You see, our enemy Satan wants to deceive us. And the darkness is the tool in which he uses to do that. Because in the darkness we can't see things for what they really are. And so the enemy tries to lure us out of the light and the truth in Jesus into the darkness where we cannot see very clearly. John Piper, who's a a wonderful preacher, gives an illustration in one of his sermons where he talks about a man in a dark room. And he says in that dark room he can't see well and so he begins to feel around for where he should move to find safety or comfort and he on one side of the room finds something that is 
cold and sharp and on the other side of the room find something that's warm and soft and furry and naturally seeking comfort finds himself drawn to that which is warm and soft only then when the light is turned on does he discover that he has um, brought himself under the belly of a man-eating monster and moved away from Christ holding a sword ready to save him The light reveals that which we cannot see. And you and I, when we're in the darkness, something happens. We seek after comfort and we draw towards warm underbellies of pride and and pleasure. And um, and we we draw away from the reality of Christ often. And so the light allows us to see things for what they really are. Are. John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21 says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As we seek after our own power, as we would draw after our own pleasure, as we would seek to find um, our own prestige, we find ourselves nestled up in a warm underbelly of a monster. And this is the opposite of what it means to be in fellowship with God. It's the opposite of what it means to see things as God sees them. And so we need the light to illuminate things for what they really are so that we would not be confused. But when we're controlled by those desires for the world instead of desires for God, it doesn't matter if we say, well, I have fellowship with God. Because the reality is we don't. Verse 6 teaches us that in our passage today. It says if we say that we have fellowship with Him, But we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him, with God, and we don't walk in the light, we lie. But verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light. You know, last week Scott talked a lot about what it means to walk as a witness to the work of of Christ in our lives. He talked in that message about what does a changed life look like? Well, so what does a joyful witness look like? So because he spent some time talking about that last week and because the real like good stuff of our talk today is going to start in the next verse, let's look at verse 8 together. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. You know, I'm so glad that this clarification is in this text that we have today. It says if we say we have no sin, that we deceive ourselves. Growing up in church, I grew up in church in this area, in this region of the country and Uh, Like me, maybe you grew up in church and you found it easy to believe that good Christians don't sin. 
You found it easy to believe that if you're a, a really good Christian, you don't sin. I, I, I knew growing up that to be a Christian meant we don't do bad things and we do the right thing. And, and, and that message repeated over and over and over again, don't do bad things, do the right thing, makes kind of creates this environment where many of us grew up believing that if you're a great Christian, you just don't do bad things. You know, it's not a new thing, really. Historically, variations of that have been taught throughout history. In fact, um, many would say that in this passage today that John is writing at some people who are saying, oh, sin is not a, a thing. That's not a real thing that we have. And, and there are all kinds of variations. We could, in fact, we could dive right into all kinds of different variations of what that looks like and explain that. But the big point that we need to grab today is that we have to understand what it means to ignore or to deny sin. Because that's very much a part of the world that we live in today. The church that we have grown up in, many of us, this culture that we have learned what it means to be a Christian, often teaches us that good Christians just don't sin. And listen, being in ministry... Um, I often will have a conversation with people that goes something like this. They'll talk about something that maybe they're struggling with or one of their friends is struggling with. And then they'll just add in this little statement like, well, you know, being a pastor and all, I bet you don't struggle with that. And as if in some way that because I'm a professional Christian, that there is no struggle with sin in any way. As if the church leadership doesn't struggle with sin. It's common for us to think That's the longer someone's been a Christian, maybe the more professional they are at it, the less they sin. Think about professional athletes, and perhaps this is why we get this idea. But you watch the longer you've been playing baseball, I mean, the better you should be at it. You don't expect a major league game to look like a t-ball game. You expect them to throw better. But here's what we often forget, that yes, there's an improvement in skill but they still make errors. No one would say a professional baseball player doesn't make errors. Games are won and lost because of errors. If you're a golfer as I am, you may find great joy in watching the golfers still hit the ball into the woods, not once, but over and over and over. It warms my heart when they hit it in the water. Because that's good to be reminded that even the professionals still struggle. You know, in church... Sometimes we look and we label the professional Christians or the the mature Christians and we completely eliminate the idea that they may actually still struggle with sin. Many of us have grown up in a culture that's um, that's taught us to pretend that Christians don't sin. And so we build up this house of cards. We create this environment of fakery where we could never admit that we're struggling with sin. Because if we admit it, then the whole thing comes crashing down. Because then our, our Christianity would even be questioned. And so you may even be about to lose your home because of financial ruin, but you'd never admit it. Your marriage may be on just the edge of falling apart, but you won't admit it. You might be addicted to a drug or to a sin, but you don't tell anybody because you have this house of cards and the system of fakery 
that says, I can't say anything. You know, verse 9 tells us to confess our sins and we will receive forgiveness. This is not just confession to God, but this verse is talking about confession to others. I think we're really actually better at confessing to God than confessing to others. When we confess to God, it still maintains secrecy. No one knows of that private confession to God. Secrecy is only going to increase your likelihood to repeat that sin. Secrecy is only going to continue to create the same environment that caused you to fall into it again. Because secrecy is a way to describe darkness. Our house of cards depends on secrecy. Why are we more willing to confess to God than we are to one another? Are we more afraid of being judged by people than being judged by God? That's uncomfortable to say, isn't it? I mean, I could see some of you even just as you listen to that. That's uncomfortable to hear. Am I more afraid of the judgment of the church than I am the judgment of Almighty God? If we believed the reverse of that, then I think we'd be doing more confessing than what we are. But we're not only held back by fear. That's not the only thing that holds us back from confessing. Our own pride holds us back for sure. Because it's not cool to admit that you're at fault. No one likes to be at fault. No one likes to commit the error that causes the winning run to score. And nobody likes to lose the golf tournament by getting a triple bogey. We don't like to, to fail. We, we don't. We want to win. And we want other people to think that we're a winner. And so I, it should be no surprise that, that not many of us are great at admitting our failures. We don't like to do that because we have pride in us that oftentimes manifests itself uh, multiple ways over into this horrible, sinful behavior. I often am surprised as I have conversations with families and with parents and you talk about them, and sometimes I do this because I work with, work with students a lot, and so I have conversations with families, and it, it's surprising to me how few parents will actually apologize to their own children because they think if they apologize, they lose their power. If they apologize, they lose their ability or their position, and so they won't apologize ever. And they tell themselves it's because I'm the parent and I have to maintain authority, and the reality that they've been tricked into is it's really their pride. You know, there's this truth about us as humans that our pride latches in so deep in such, a, in such a way that we don't want to admit fault. And it prevents us from confessing our sin. There's an incredible book, uh, section of a book by Jonathan Edwards where he writes about humility. This, this, he writes this huge paragraph where he works his way all through the Bible and talks about humility and just lists scripture after scripture after scripture of how the Bible teaches humility, which is, of course, the opposite of pride. But I want to share this one statement that I found in that section of the book. It's just one quote. I found it powerful, so I wanted to share it with you. It says, It is inexpressible and almost inconceivable how strong a self-righteous, and self-exalting disposition is naturally in man. 
and what he will not do and suffer to feed it and gratify it. In other words, it's crazy what we'll do to keep our reputation, to keep our pride. It's crazy what we'll do to feed that pride within ourselves. We're so concerned with this image. We're so concerned what people might think about us that we begin to deceive ourselves and we begin to even believe about ourselves something that's not actually true. Verse 10 of our scripture today says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, we make God a liar. That's a powerful statement. In our effort to feel better about ourselves, to avoid uh, humiliation, to avoid having to say that we've done something wrong, in our effort to avoid confession, the end result is that we create this structure of ignoring sin, and the result of that is denying God. Confession produces humility inside of each of us. Confession breaks pride. Confession is something that that creates within us a proper understanding of who we are and the way that we stand before God. To not understand, to not be real about our own sinfulness is to make a statement like verse 10. If we say we haven't sinned, we make God a liar. We need more humility. We need more humility. What would it look like if we could break the power of pride, step into that vulnerable place of confession, and allow humility and a proper understanding of sinfulness? What would it be like for us as a church if we could be a place together where that was the environment that we created. Where people wouldn't grow up and say, I grew up in this church where it was not okay to mess up. What if we created a culture here at First Christian Church together where it was okay if you weren't okay? Where it was alright if you messed up? Where you didn't get publicly shamed and you didn't get pushed down to the ground? What if you could say this statement out loud? Could you say this? If not for the grace of God, I would be a slave to sin. If not for the grace of God, I, Tommy, would be a slave to sin. That's true for me. If not for God's grace, I would be an absolute slave to sin. You could list the worst end result of sinful behavior, and that would be me if not for the grace of God. The sinfulness that is a part of me is so real and so powerful that if not for God's grace, I would be a slave to sin. Could you say that yourself? Because if you find it difficult to talk about your sinfulness that way, then perhaps you have deceived yourself as this passage teaches. Listen, we're not set free from sin because we've learned over time how to do better. Our righteous works don't free us from sin. 
We're made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Not by the things that we do, but by the blood of Jesus. If not for God's grace through Jesus Christ, I would be a slave to sin. So do you have a walk with God? Would you prove it by admitting your sinfulness? The result is going to be a humble heart. The result is going to be you'll see pride disappear because it's impossible to be prideful when you're seeking to be humble. And God creates humility and asks for that and His Scriptures reinforce the, that we are to be humble. And so the benefit is yours that your heart would be made humble. But don't you know the benefit is also for the world that looks in in a skeptical way and says, prove it. Prove it. Because when the world looks at the church, you know a lot of times what they see? They see a group of people who are hypocrites. They see a group of people who claim one thing and do another. They see a group of people who say they believe this, this thing, but they're no better than the person who says they're a vegan and buys steak at the grocery store. They look at the church and they say, if you really believe that, you'd act differently. What if we really admitted our sinfulness and confessed and created that culture here? Well, I think what we would do is we would destroy pride and we would destroy hypocrisy. We would not be a prideful church, but we'd be a church where it's okay if you mess up. A church that's not boasting in its own good works, but a church that is boasting in the power of Jesus Christ. All that we bring is just just filthy rags. We don't have a great offering. So we're utterly dependent upon Jesus. We would be so lost without Jesus, don't you know? So lost without Jesus. The truth is that many of us in here act like we could live a day without Jesus. The reality is a lot of us actually try to live days without Jesus. If we're going to walk with God, we're utterly dependent upon Him. We're going to be moved to confess our need for Him continually. Lord, I need You. Oh, Lord, I need You. We would be moved to confess our sin, to seek forgiveness, and to turn away from a sinful life. God, we need You. We cannot express with our words how much we need Jesus Christ. And God, you recognized that need before we ever knew it existed. And you sent Jesus for us. God, you are so good in sending Jesus that we find in him the righteousness we could never have on our own, that we find in him the forgiveness that we could never earn, that we know in Jesus freedom from sin. So we pray that you would give us courage today to admit and confess. We pray that you would help us to break pride. We pray that you would bring into the light our next step as we walk with you. So that we would grow to a greater dependency on you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe today you need to take a next step. And today is a day for you where um, you need to accept uh, um, the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to do that yourself, but trying to just do a lot of good things 
and you need to accept Jesus for the first time. We would invite you to do that during our time of invitation. We would invite you to come and to accept the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ in the first time through baptism. We would invite you today as well if you would like to join with us to become a church that actually is going to uh, not be a church that's full of hypocrisy, but a church that draws people not to ourselves or how cool we are, but a church that draws people to Jesus. That you would say, I want to be with you in that, and I want to be a member, and I want to be committed to that. So as a baptized believer, you would come forth uh, today, and that you would and that you would make uh, a statement, say, I'm, I'm with you in that, and place membership with us today. Or maybe you just need to pray today. Maybe some of this is something you've got to work out in prayer. There'll be some people that will stand right up here and they would even be ready to pray with you uh, for an extended period of time and can walk right out these doors over here into a room and you can spend some time praying today. If that's um, something that you need to respond to today, we'd invite you to do so as we stand together and as we sing.